0: Amen. Be seated, please. Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 16. We'll be starting in verse 21. If you're visiting with us today or watching online, we've been working our way through the book of Matthew, and um, this is providentially where we find ourselves today. The end of chapter 16. And prepping for next week where we head into 17. And I would remind you as we have begun in knowing that God speaks to us. uh, He speaks to us in His written Word and uh, He is so infinitely wise that uh, though this was written 2,000 years ago-ish, he wrote it with that original reading audience in mind and with every reading audience since then, but even with you today in mind, so much so that we can say that the Lord God Himself is about to speak to you personally in Matthew chapter 16, God's Word. Verse 21 from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. And then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You have spoken to us in the reading of Your Word. Would You please now speak to us in its preaching? We pray for the Spirit to speak clearly. In Jesus' name, Amen. It is always interesting to me how sometimes words can be used... To cover over the difficulty behind them. How words, in some sense, oftentimes kind of lose some of their meaning, lose some of the sting of the reality behind them, so that we can say things and kind of get a laugh and not realize the grief behind it. Take, for example, the soup Nazi. Right? Or whatever form of Nazi that you've heard referenced, right? If it's an old TV show character, you've also, you know, heard of if you went to college, the parking attendant Nazi, right? The parking ticket Nazi. We're willing to kind of tack on to the end of an insult the word Nazi and compare them intentionally kind of meaning someone who follows the rules in an overly rigid fashion. Right? The soup Nazi. No soup for you. You didn't follow the rules right, you don't get soup. Why? Because, you know, that's the rules. That's how it works. And in doing so, we kind of unintentionally, it seems like, make light of the fact that the Nazis killed 20 million people. More than a million of them died in Auschwitz alone. A million people made in the image of God. Walked into the Auschwitz complex and never walked out. Yeah, soup Nazi, that's great, thanks. Depending on what part of the country you've grown up in, there's various versions of the next one. Man, I was working like a slave, or I slaved in the kitchen all day. You did not. You you might have worked hard, and I'll give you that. But can we please not compare your one day's hard labor to 244 years of chattel slavery in this nation? There's nothing alike. I think the one that perhaps upsets me the most personally is the frivolity, the, the, the casualness that our culture throws out go to hell. Really? Really, you're, you're comfortable wishing the wrath of an eternal, powerful, creative God on a person because they cut you off in traffic? How, how little meaning hell has in our current culture that we name dip of our chips after it. It's the best type of sour cream dip, isn't it? Words cover over the, the grim atrocity of what lies behind it. And one of those areas that I think the church itself can sometimes be a bit guilty of is when we go to discuss the cross. When we're Christians. We, we love the cross. The, the cross represents forgiveness. It, it represents for us kind of a, the, the symbol of Christianity, and we forget what it is. We forget that the cross was so grim, it was so gruesome, that the Romans themselves refused to do that to their own people. If a Roman citizen had to be executed, Rome itself was like, nah, the cross is too bad. We, we, we can't crucify our own people. We can't crucify Romans. No one, we cannot do that. We'll, we'll, we'll behead them, we'll kill them other ways, that's fine. We, we cannot use that means of execution I mean, it's intriguing how even in our nation, we've had a a running conversation for the last, I don't know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years about uh, should we have capital punishment? And then when we do, we we need to find the most humane version of it. You know, is it firing squad? Is it lethal injection? Is it uh, electrocution? What way is it to dispatch a person with minimal pain so that their uh, justice is resolved in the afterlife? Friends, the cross represents the opposite of that. It's not a search for the least painful form. It is an arrival at the most painful form. And then to think for Christians, is the cross itself is a reminder of the gruesome death of the worst of kinds. To think that further on top of that, we have the Lord Jesus Christ Himself undergoing the total wrath of God. We could spend all morning contemplating the the terrors of, of dying on a cross. When they dropped the cross into the hole, it dislocated your shoulders so that you were no longer able to pull yourself up by your shoulder weight. So instead, what happened is your shoulders pulled up, it collapsed your diaphragm, and you slowly suffocated to death. The only way that you didn't suffocate to death was to stand and push off of your feet But the feet had been nailed to the cross so it was to take your entire body weight and to press against the nails that had been sent through your ankles and to use that as a chance of purchase to catch a moment of breath. It's why they would break the legs of people when they wanted them to die faster because then they would suffocate more quickly. And the part of the cross that was so unbelievably gruesome is that it would take days potentially to do it, and the person who was dying was involved in their own death because their death came when they gave up and quit trying. It's the worst way to die I can think of, and to be honest, that was the easy part of what Jesus experienced on the cross. Dying in the most gruesome fashion humanity has ever devised is infinitely easier than the other part where he received the wrath of God in its totality on the cross. Friends, when he says it's finished, that's what he's talking about. He's not saying I had a good run in my life, I'm giving up, I'm done. He's saying that I took God's wrath in its completion and I have resolved it. It is the backdrop of such a horrible atrocity that we arrive at the passage that we get to today. Another one of those phrases that we throw out that's lost its meaning because we refuse to think about the hard parts of the faith. This portion of the Gospel of Matthew is absolutely magnificent. The disciples have finally gotten who Jesus is. If you looked at last week's passage, verses 13 through 20, they finally recognize that Jesus is, verse 16, you are the Christ. That's a technical term arriving from the Old Testament, which means the anointed one of God, the one who would redeem his people. But not only are you the anointed one of God, the one who would redeem his people, you are also God himself, the son of the living God. And finally, the disciples understand. They've been with Jesus a while, and it's kind of come for them in fits and starts, but now it's, it's kind of light bulb clear. They understand who Jesus is. He's Friends, He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a good man. He is God incarnate. Jesus, being infinitely wise in verse 21, he changes his ministry. This is a massive turning point in the ministry of Jesus in the book of Matthew. From that time forth, Jesus begins to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders the chief priest scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. He, he now begins to explain to them his mission if we were going to think about it kind of big picture, we would say Matthew chapters 1 through the first half of 16 is a conversation about identity. Who is Jesus? It's getting the disciples ready to be able to write the right name on his name tag. Who is Jesus? Well, he is God. They get it. They don't just say he's a nice guy. They don't say, oh, he has kind eyes. I don't know if he did or didn't. He's God. And now, once we've figured out the name tag, once we've figured out the identity, now we figure out the purpose. Why on earth, literally, has God stepped inside time and space? instance, God himself is uncreated, nothing made him, he's always been. In fact, he's outside of time and space, and if you are a bit of a science geek like I am, you kind of begin to think that you understand, really, time, space, energy, and matter are all the same thing. They're just different forms of the same thing, which means God being uncreated is outside of time, he's outside of space, he's outside of energy, and he's outside of matter. He's outside the entire system. But in Jesus, he steps inside. Why would the uncreated God take on creation? Why would he put on time? He's been timeless. He still is timeless. Why would Jesus become one inside of time? And here he begins to explain to the disciples why. Because I have to go to Jerusalem, I have to suffer, I have to die, and I have to be raised. And friends, that is the heart of the gospel. Why is Jesus inside of time and space? Why is he inside of creation? He's inside creation because he is in the business of forgiving sins. He is in the business of resolving every minor and major mistake that you have ever made. He's in the business of resolving the wrath of God which belongs to you and me because we have all sinned. And it's interesting that Jesus, at this point, in some sense, becomes a bit of an evangelist, not just explaining who he is to his disciples, but telling them why he's here. I have come to die and be raised. And I love how the passage, it doesn't stop there. In fact, actually, we get to see the human condition written large in the responses here. In fact, if we were going to kind of spend a lot of time here, we would be able to almost even get chuckles as to how accurately God describes so many of our responses to who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God Himself. And Jesus explains that He has come to step inside time and space, to die unjustly on a cross. He's never done anything wrong, to be murdered on a cross, and then be raised from the dead. What do you do with that reality? That's briefly what we're going to consider this morning. What is our response? to the salvation of Jesus, look like? In fact, actually here we see five responses. All bad. Five responses, all bad to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. Verse 22, we see Peter, an amazingly sympathetic figure here. I I love this. Now again, you have to read this one to kind of turn off your New Testament brain for a moment and think about this within the context of what's just happened. They've literally watched Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. He asks them who he is and they tell him, oh yes, we believe that you are God. And Jesus says, right on. Now it's time for me to die. And you can understand how Peter would be like, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that correctly. You're right now? And Jesus says, no, it's time for me to head to Jerusalem to die. And you can imagine Peter taking him aside and being like, surely you understand that is a strategic mistake. Surely you understand that for the Son of God to go to Jerusalem to die is a really bad strategic decision. In fact, actually, you can even see it so easily as just being kindness. Almost even kind of a, a, a baby version of faith. Jesus, you just showed us that you, only, you don't even need anything to feed the masses. You fed 4,000 with just a, a couple of loaves and a couple of fish. You fed 5,000 with just a couple of loaves and a couple of fish. You've, you can make anything out of nothing. Why on earth would you have to die? Far be it from you, Lord. It's not going to happen. And you could even see that kind of second sentence from Peter. It's never going to happen to you as, as a statement of faith. Look, Jesus, why are you never going to die? Because you're God, you're the Son of God. You are power incarnate. You can't die. Why? No. You know, friends, what Peter's doing here is something that is um, very sneaky. It sounds like biblical wisdom. It sounds like faith. You're God. You can't do such and such. But actually what's happened is Peter has inserted human wisdom in place of God's wisdom. (laughs) I love it because if you actually pause and think about it, it's like, Peter, you literally just said the man is God. I think he probably has the wisdom thing down. I think he probably has the whole, like, wisdom thing figured out. You don't have to worry about that. In fact, actually, he's already even told you that not only is he going to Jerusalem to die, but he's not going to stay dead. You probably don't have to worry about Jesus. But interestingly, Peter, in kind of this moment of kindness, this moment of tenderness, this moment of just mess, (laughs) well, Jesus, I've got it figured out. I know better than you. No, you don't have to die. You don't have to suffer. I just want life to be easy and great. I just want life to be easy and great for you, Jesus, because I love you. And friends, I would lovingly suggest while we do not do this quite so obviously as pulling Jesus aside and saying you don't have to go to the cross, it is with great regularity that we tell Jesus that we know better than he does in fact actually if we're going to be honest many of us our lives is an exercise in know-it-allism i mean it's too bad god wrote the bible cuz i already had it all figured out right if only he'd just listen to me i already i already got it all Now, of course, we're so sophisticated, we would never say this in public, that this is what we think, but when it comes time to wrestling through our difficulties, when wrestling through the things that hurt our feelings, or wrestling through the things that make us uncomfortable, or wrestling through the things that stretch us, and and demand things from us, and change us, and, and force us out of our comfort zone, we say, I know better than my God does. I'm not supposed to be in this situation. It's not fair. I'm not supposed to be doing this. If only Jesus had as much wisdom as I do. It's in fact, actually, that's why Peter gets such a staggering rebuke from Jesus. I mean, what he says sounds so good on the surface. Well, you're not going to die, Jesus. You're too powerful for that. Jesus looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Wow. Wow. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Satan is the accuser, the enemy of God. The one who shows up at the beginning of the book, shows up when Jesus is here, shows up at the end of the book. He is the one who is actively seeking to destroy all that is good and lovely and right and true. And Jesus blasts Peter with it. Peter, the words that you say sound more like the voice of the devil than the voice of God. Do not miss the significance of that. That when Peter offers his own wisdom, it sounds more like the devil than it does heaven. And I love all of you that I know. If I don't know you yet, I'm sure I will love you when I get to know you. I hate to break it to you, but you're not better than Peter. Your wisdom isn't an improvement over his. Were we to be in a situation where we were to insert our own view in such a way, our response would be no better. In fact, actually, Jesus clarifies, look, this sounds like the voice of the devil more than anything. In fact, actually, it's an active hindrance to my ministry. Jesus is in the business of forgiving sins. And if Peter had his way, as kind-hearted as it is, it would send everybody to hell forever. I love that. What an exercise in the foolishness of humanity. That Peter, in a moment of tenderness, if he actually had gotten his way, we'd all be in hell forever. The cross is required for salvation. The final part is the setting of the stage for the rest of the paragraph, the rest of the chapter. What does it mean to respond to Jesus correctly or incorrectly? Well, Peter's problem is that he's setting his mind on not the things of God, but on the things of man. It's his own wisdom. It's his own thinking. It's his own idea. Jesus then kind of pushes further. He takes the disciples as a whole and begins to instruct them. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And this is where we get into those phrases that are thrown out that are absolutely horrifically wrong. Growing up in the South, I can't tell you the hundreds of times I've heard of, well, that's just my cross to bear. What do we mean when we say, well, that's just my cross to bear? Almost universally, it is over some minutia that inconveniences us. Like, you know, I just don't have a great sense of smell. That's just my cross to bear. Great. I mean, it's only inconvenient in the middle of a global pandemic with a virus where you have first symptoms of not being able to smell. But other than that, it's no inconvenience for the rest of your life. Interestingly, Jesus is making a much bigger point in terms of how to reflect and react to the gospel is what he's challenging is people who are clinging to themselves, that are clinging to their own abilities, clinging to their own merits, clinging to their own wisdom, clinging to their own life instead of clinging to Jesus. I mean, hear this sentence for what it is. If anyone would follow me, Let him take up the most gruesome means of execution and use it on himself every day. This is not an inconvenience. This is an extermination of the self, an extermination of my desires, of my longings, of my wants, of my claims to my own life. Jesus is challenging us to say, look, I'm I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die an unjust death. I'm going to be murdered so that you can spend eternity in heaven. That's what I'm giving you. Your response is to cling to Christ Jesus at all cost. And interestingly, what do we do instead? We grasp so tightly to our own desires, to our own longings, to our own wants? Who as Americans, this is amazing, right? Just get us the slightest bit inconvenienced and watch how we fall apart. Right? We're a mess. I mean, part of what Jesus is saying here is the essence of Christianity is self-denial. The essence of America is self-indulgence. Those two don't mix. And friends, I would just straight up tell you, some of you in the room, the reason why your life is hard or is bad is because you are living a life of self-indulgence. Some of you, the reason why your life is hard or the reason why your life is bad is that you've attempted to give up your life of self-indulgence to take up a a life of personal self-denial and have missed the point, the whole thing Jesus is challenging us to is to cling to him. To let him be the leader of my life in every area. Let him shape my desires. Let him shape my understanding of the truth. Let him shape my longings and how I am to live. Let him shape every part of who I am. Take up his cross and execute the self. Now, this is not suicide. That's evil. This is an execution of the, 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 the sinful aspect of the human soul. Clinging to Christ instead. Why? Well, I love how Jesus gives motivation. Right? It's a terrifying thing to give up control of your life. That's why so many of us try to live it with a closed fist, grasping so tightly, white-knuckling it through our lives. It's terrifying to give up control. What does Jesus say? For whoever would save his life will lose it. So if you grasp tightly to your life, if you white knuckle it, if you squeeze as tight as you can trying to maintain your own life every day your way, well, guess what? You lose. But the person who loses his life, who gives up control, who who gives up the claims of independency for Christ, well, that person gets life eternal. Eternal. And not just life eternal, but blessing upon blessing upon blessing on top of it. Verse 26, he takes us to an application of this. I'm going to kind of handle it as a separate point. He pushes further, and I think this is even more applicable to our culture. He then challenges, tweaks it again, not just from the, the idea of me controlling my own life, but even further, me trying to find fulfillment in an earthly life. So much of our moment in time, so much of our culture, so much of our nation, so much of, of what we, how we live our lives is just an exercise in attempting to find meaning in that which is material. To find meaning in being a parent. To find meaning in in being married. To find meaning in our sexuality. To find meaning in our jobs. To find meaning in our pleasures. To find meaning in our wealth. To find some form of meaning in what the world has to offer. Jesus obliterates that with a question. What will it profit a man... If he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul, what does it matter if you have everything the world has to offer, absolutely everything, and lose your soul? In seminary, I remember watching the Martin Bashir documentary on Michael Jackson. And uh, I think probably one of the saddest things I've ever watched in my entire life. Because here was Michael Jackson who at, what, six years old? Had literally everything the world could possibly offer. Obscene wealth. He was the greatest at his craft on planet Earth by eight He had fame in a way that he would never be alone ever again. And he had enough money to satisfy any longing that he possibly could. And Martin Brashear, in his interviews with him, was talking with him, and you would just hear uh, Michael talking constantly about how just at the end of the day, he would wake up in the middle of the night with just loneliness that could never be satisfied. That's why he reverted to his childhood. It was some effort to find meaning, and the problem was that he had everything the world could buy, every illicit pleasure the world shouldn't be offering but did. He bought it all, and none of it satisfied him. You remember at one point, just on a whim, he was feeling lonely and broken, so he bought all of the rights to the Beatles. He owned the Beatles on a whim one afternoon. What does it profit a person to have everything the world has to offer but have an empty soul? What does it help? It doesn't. What shall a man give in return for a soul? What is your soul worth to you? What can solve the problem of the emptiness inside? Can anything this world has to offer do it? Obviously, the answer is no. I think in our current moment, one of the, the kind of classic responses to all of this that we're giving as a nation, the culture in which we live is, well, if I ignore it, it's just not there, <laughs> right? If I, just, if, I just, if I just don't think about it, it doesn't exist. And so you know what? This whole reality of the emptiness in my soul, the longings inside, the, the loneliness, the brokenness, the desire for a greater meaning, I'm just not going to think about it. You know, this idea of Jesus being God, the way the Bible says that He is, the, the, the ultimate claims that He makes on my life, I'm just, I'm just not going to think about it. I'm just, I'm going to put my fingers in my ears, I'm going to close my eyes, I'm just going to keep myself as busy as possible. I'm just not going to think about it, right? Like an ostrich, put my head in the sand, I just, nothing bad can happen, not if I don't think about it. Now, Jesus, I think, corrects that problem. 27, whether you like it or not, whether you're ready or not, whether you're well-prepared or not, whether you agree or not, honestly, doesn't matter, whether you even believe in Him or not. For the Son of Man, that's Jesus' title for Himself, referring to His divinity, the Son of Man, Jesus, is going to return to earth. This time he doesn't come in the form of an innocent looking kind of non-threatening baby. Doesn't come as the form of a poor carpenter, a homeless traveling rabbi. No, in this time he returns to earth with his angels. Remember the word angel in the Bible is the idea of some sort of creature of fire. They are terrifying. Everyone that meets them is like not interested in talking to them. They are scary things. The only thing more scary than them is God himself. The Son of Man is going to return with his angels and specifically in the glory of the Father. That is a statement right there. Not coming in in simple humanity, not coming just as a good man or a good teacher, but coming with the fullness of the glory of God. And guess what? At the end of the day, whether you like it or not, judgment will happen. This is not the part of preaching I enjoy the most. I like giving words that encourage you. I like giving words that comfort you when you're sad. I like giving words that give you hope. The sad reality is I have to be faithful to my task to give you the words that make you uncomfortable. Whether you like it or not, judgment is coming. And friends, there are only two routes to resolve that. Either you pay that judgment forever And friends, a sin against an eternal God requires an eternal punishment. Either you pay that punishment for all eternity or the Lord Jesus does it for you. I'm going to tell you right now, that's a pretty sweet deal. I either spend all eternity under the wrath of God or Jesus does it for me and I never have any wrath ever again. I don't know about you. I don't like the idea of God being wrathful toward me. I'll take the second option. That's the heart of the gospel that Jesus freely gives forgiveness of sin. It's free to us. It cost him his life on the cross. But whether you like it or not, time will end, matter will end. You will die. And then the judgment do you want to be judged for your sins or do you want to be judged for christ's righteousness now interestingly again i I know some of us the temptation is to say well i mean i know these things are to be true but i don't have to deal with it now i grew up as a child in a church i understand I've been in the PCA. I've been in this denomination since I was about six months old. I understand how easy it is to say, well, I know I need to be ready to die, but I'm 15. I'm not going to die now. I know I need to be ready to die. I'm 41. I'm, I'm not going to die now. I know that I need to be ready to face the life to come, but it's not coming for me yet. And the great reality is we actually don't know if that's true or not. You you don't know. You you don't know when your time is up. Many of you remember this story as a pastor in our denomination is maybe six, seven years ago now down in Florida. He was preaching on heaven and he said, guys, I'm ready to go right now. And that was the last sentence he said, drop dead right there in the pulpit. Everybody needs counseling after that, except for him. We don't know. We we have no idea. Jesus even clarifies it and says, look, truly, I say to you, there's some standing in his midst, some of the disciples there that aren't going to die before they get to see this glory. They're going to see the glory of God before they die because the reality is God's timeline doesn't match ours. We're going to find out in chapter 17, a couple of them get to see the glory right away. The rest of them get to see in the resurrection. You don't get to set the timeline. God does. You don't get to wait. Stupid to wait. You see, all of these are responses that are in some form or fashion. At the very core of them, they're clinging to me. My pleasures, my desires, my rights, my thoughts, my opinions, my timeline. It's all about me. And what Jesus is saying in the gospel is that you're the problem, not the solution. He's the solution. I mentioned it when we first started worship. This is the Sunday that half of the the Christian church celebrates Easter don't know the Eastern Orthodox Church. The Orthodox Church will celebrate next month. But in doing so, all Christians are in some form or fashion, either every Sunday or uh, this Sunday specifically, proclaiming the resurrection of the Lord Jesus as our hope for the life to come. Because what we are saying is, my hope is not in me. My hope is in God, who lived and died and was raised. And friends, may it not be that we would walk out of this room and say, that pastor in the really snazzy jacket, it is snazzy, said a lot of things that hurt my feelings and a lot of things that made me angry. But once I get home and get a nice plate of food, Everything will be just okay. Friends, that's the problem. That we're going to go home and some of us are going to try to make it okay by just filling ourselves with more self. Doesn't work that way. It's like trying to go on a diet, lose weight by eating lots of ice cream. Doesn't work real well. Might it be instead that we'd have one of those kind of come to Jesus moments where we would reflect on the fact that, you know what my life is? It's out of order. It's a life that has been filled with me. It hasn't worked out that well for me, honestly, if I'm going to be truthful. Maybe Jesus will do a better job. He offers freely, find forgiveness and hope and healing in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we do love You. We do marvel at Your great kindness that You would show so much mercy to us that You would send Your Son to die for us we're not good people. And we thank you that Jesus makes us into his good people and your good people. Forgive us for our sins, for Christ's sake. Amen.